From the Inspiration Office in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and on this episode of the podcast, we'll be speaking with Jigger Shah. Jigger Shah is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. Generate Capital is based in San Francisco and provides specialty financing and capital investment for companies in the renewable energy, agriculture, and mobility sectors. The firm is also well known for its focus on infrastructure as a service. Before starting Generate Capital in 2014, Jigger was the co-founder and CEO of Sun Edison, where he pioneered no money down solar and unlocked a multi-billion dollar solar market, creating the largest solar services company in the world at the time. After Sun Edison, Jigger served as the CEO of the Carbon War Room, a global nonprofit founded by Sir Richard Branson and Virgin Unite to help entrepreneurs address climate change. Jigger is also a co-host on the podcast series The Energy Gang and is the author of Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy, which was published in 2013. He's an advocate for the phase-out of energy subsidies and is, not surprisingly, the source of the eponymous Jigger Shaw Rule, which states countries should not have stupid policy. We are delighted to have him on the podcast today. As always, I am joined here in the studio by the esteemed Patrick Malloy, and calling into the studio from London is the one and only Chris Jackson. How are you guys doing? Pretty good, Andrew. How are you? Pretty good intro, huh? Always a pleasure, Andrew, especially after such a charming introduction. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> so, Chris, tell us about uh, the time you made an impression on Jigger Shaw. I've, I think uh, Patrick and I are pretty excited to hear his side of the story as well. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think I made an impression on him. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Chris. No, but I mean, yeah, there was, I remember listening to Energy Gang when we were, uh, you know, trying to learn a little bit about this big, crazy alternative energy world and uh, ended up at a conference at Columbia SEPA where they had a, a live recording of the energy gang. I remember going up to Jigger afterwards, as you do, these things when you're just feeling a bit idealistic and sort of saying, well, you know, thank you, Vitor, all very impressive, you know, lots of platitudes and all these sorts of things. And then basically just ask the question, you know, what's your take on hydrogen? Do you like it? I think it's really interesting. And, you know, essentially was told, look, um, you know, this really doesn't, you know, we've looked at the numbers before, it doesn't really make much sense. It's not particularly interesting for us right now. If you have anything interesting to share, let me know. And then sort of, you know, hand off the card and disappeared off into a sea of people. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Jigger an event, but essentially it's a little bit like Moses parting the ocean. There's just a swarm of people always oh around. Oh my them. word. So, um, so yeah, you, you get a, a brief window. D does that mean you'd follow them through the, through the sea? <laughs> Well, it looks like investors certainly have. So, I mean, you know, this says something, I guess. Wow. I, I'm, I'm strong feeling. For the first time in my life, I'm speechless. Wow. I, now, <laughs> now I'm getting really excited to have Jigger on the show. Yeah, exactly. No, look, I mean, I think, I think the thing that's interesting about Jigger Shah is uh, not only um, the story of Sun Edison, which, you know, uh, as a no money down uh, solar proposition and sort of effectively solar as a service model really was game changing in the United States. You know, the whole idea of energy as a service has become a much more common uh, model in general um, in the renewable industry. In many senses, it's also helped to address some of these sort of perpetual challenges that investors have had in trying to create an easily commoditizable and easily investable asset with some form of predictable cash flows. And therefore, the energy as a service model seems to be easier for them to get their heads around. So it'll be great to have him on the show and to kind of get his sense of why at the moment he, he sort of seems to be more inclined to believe that hydrogen is reaching that point and why Generate Capital, the investment company that he's, been, uh, he's set up and that he currently is president of, um, why they decided to invest in Plug Power. You know, Plug is not a new company. It's been around a long time. So what is it about sort of April 2019 that made him feel this is the moment to, to get into this space and to put some money behind it? Um, but I mean, I don't know, Patrick, what's your thoughts? On Jigger parting the, the seas or <laughs> just... <laughs> no, like for me, it's it's particularly interesting to see folks who were at the forefront of uh, the renewable energy kind of revolution or transformation and some of the, the early adopters on, and parties engaged in the mobility solutions world and world turning around and, and contemplating this as a, an enabler of the next step of that. You know, Jigger, Jigger wrote a, a piece probably a couple of months back, maybe a couple of weeks back anyway, talking about precisely that 
I'm very interested and keen to hear where that role is, what that looks like, and uh, precisely where he sees the potential that was distinct from your uh, your earlier interactions. So, yeah, look, uh, there's obviously a, an awful lot of momentum in the in the space right now. Uh, I think this is one of the the first calls where we're going to talk with people who are actual financiers who are getting into this space, and I think we're going to get a distinct uh, and different kind of. Uh, perspective on much of what we talked about in previous episodes. So yeah, looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to learning more about the reputation that Chris Jackson managed to develop in, in that short space of time all those years ago. Hello. Hi, Jigger. Hey, Andrew. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've got Chris on the line as well. And Patrick is here with me in the studio. Hey, how are you? Hey, Jigger. Good to meet you. So, Jigger, the the first thing that I uh, wanted to ask you about, Chris Jackson has been telling us a story for years now about how he met you and that uh, he came up to speak with you about hydrogen technology and you uh, effectively told him to buzz off and call you in a few years. So, I think he's made on uh, following through on that. I'm just curious. <laughs> We're just very curious to know if you remember it and if you do what your side of the story is, because Chris loves to tell it. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, I think that I was running the Carbon War Room, I think, at the time. And, you know, I was getting inundated with hydrogen, right? This is from the oil companies in general from Europe, where they kept saying, hydrogen's the answer, EVs are never going to be anything, and we just need to keep pushing hydrogen. And I just couldn't fathom how hydrogen had a real pathway to getting from uh, where it was, which was really an industrial gas, to a retail gas that a lot of people could use for discrete purposes. And every time I'd even looked at the California hydrogen highway or the things, it just looked ludicrous to see how you could get from here to there. And so, no, it was very true. And I certainly apologize if I was rude <laughs> about it. I try not to be, but... Uh, but I have to say no to some things. <laughs> no, no, to, to be not, fair. Absolutely not rude at all. I mean, Andrew, of course, is being intentionally provocative to just put me on the spot. But <laughs> Well, Chris characterizes it as his brush with greatness. So I just wanted to confirm <laughs> that it may or may not have happened. <laughs> well, I, I did. I think the expression I was using, Andrew, a couple of minutes ago is it's like when you sort of watch Jigger sort of walking around a room after an energy gang recording at a conference, it is like sort of Moses passing the ocean as people swarm him. So I did feel very privileged to be able to get in briefly uh, and you know it's also fantastic to have you on the show so jigger we'll we'll move in straight into the uh, slightly more substantive questions you know the the question that we have is you know how does someone best known for building a solar developer start to think about the role of hydrogen in the renewable energy sector and how did you how did you analyze the the market uh, when you were when you were looking at it yeah well so I think I got here in a bit of a roundabout way I think I started with uh, making the switch from the private sector to the nonprofit sector when I was tapped to run the carbon war room. And a lot of what we looked at at the Carbon War Room was really, are there market-driven ways to really unlock innovation that came out of the 1970s R&D boom in clean energy that frankly had been sitting there gathering dust in the shelf. And we saw lots of solutions for the shipping industry and how you might reduce uh, the fuel consumption there. We saw a lot of applications around energy efficiency and cement and other places, right? And so hydrogen factored into a lot of those different solution sets. And then when I joined Generate Capital and helped to start it in 2014, one of our early clients was Plug Power, who today is the largest uh, user of liquid hydrogen shipments in the United States, roughly 15% of all hydrogen shipped around the country. And that got me thinking, you know, about the supply chain and what they were paying and where it was coming from and whether there were innovations from George W. Bush's, you know, big focus on, on hydrogen uh, that could be deployed. And, and so I just started peeling back the onion and some of these applications really do make a ton of sense. And so that's really how I got into hydrogen was via plug power. And then, you know, at the end, more recently, I've realized that there's a linkage back to renewable energy. And so, Jigger, kind of coming in uh, a little bit on that, I mean, you know, when you talk about plug power, one of the sort of things that 
Plug in some senses um, received a little bit of pushback for in the early days was that a lot of the hydrogen it was using was uh, sort of from fossil fuels or from uh, natural gas companies. So green hydrogen is obviously what people are getting quite excited about now, especially as the cost of renewable energy is declining. How at the moment as an investor is generate capital thinking about the opportunities in that particular segment? Do you still think it's probably a little bit too early or are you starting to see interesting niches and opportunities for that now in the US emerging? Well, it's always too early, right? Depending on where you sit in the capital stack, right? So I'm not too worried about being early. I think in general, I get less concerned about the carbon footprint of any one installation and am more interested in whether there's a pathway by which decarbonization can occur over time, right? You can imagine a whole bunch of people yelling about electric vehicles that were being, you know, fueled by coal plants, and having the same issues, right? And I feel like moving to electric vehicles is one effort and then moving to decarbonize the electricity sector is a related effort, but I don't think one should you know, wait till the decarbonization of the electricity grid before one buys an EV. And I think the same thing is true with hydrogen. Figuring out how to physically get hydrogen from a refinery or some other place where an SMR is deployed to some remote Walmart distribution center you know, is, is the is the focus, figuring out how to get reliable hydrogen shipments to a mission critical application is the focus. And then figuring out how to green that hydrogen over time is something I'm working on now. One of the things that is also interesting in, in that sort of decarbonization pathway is, I mean, you, you spoke about EVs. Would you kind of agree with the sort of seeming market assessment at the moment that the real focus is on the mobility side um, for hydrogen today? I mean, you obviously have invested in plugs. I guess we would consider that to be a, a mobility play. But do you think that actually there are also opportunities today that make sense to look at on the green hydrogen side for blue hydrogen on actually industry? Or is that all a little bit too early? Do we need to see a little bit more momentum on these kind of early stage, you know, on the cusp of being commercial, in some cases, actually quite attractive commercial uh, opportunities for hydrogen? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's one that I struggle with. And so it, clearly you can call plug powers forklifts mobility, and we certainly do. But, you know, I, I don't know that the payback analysis works, right? I mean, plug powers, fuel cells, depending on how you calculate the, you know, reclaimed warehouse space um, that was previously used for lead-acid batteries, Walmart publicly said that their payback was 33 days, right, from all the extra money they made from being able to reclaim that space for warehouse space. You know, and so in some cases, it might be one year, I don't think anyone in a fuel cell car or a fuel cell bus is talking about a one-year payback. So I think we should be careful about how we, you know, compare and lump all these things together. I do think it is the case that for electric vehicles, there's a case to be made that the vast majority of EVs, particularly for last mile delivery for Amazon and some of those folks, um, are really only driving, let's call it, you know, 60 to 80 mile uh, routes. And that every once in a while you get stuck with a 150 mile route. And that having hydrogen fuel cell range extenders is actually a far lower cost way of meeting that need than uh, just lugging around a 200 mile range battery pack that never gets used or rarely gets used. And so I think there those applications in mobility are very obvious places for hydrogen to start in. But the notion that we're going to go to hydrogen fuel cell cars um, and that's going to rival, let's say, a Tesla Model S in the next few years seems fanciful. Actually, Patrick, I know you're going to hate me for this. I had to just jump in on that. One of the questions that I'd heard Jigger on that last point was car companies saying to me or fuel cell startup companies saying to me that at the moment there just simply isn't a fuel cell vehicle that's really captured the public imagination in a certain way, right? They'll say that the Mirai, from an engineering perspective, a very interesting model, but it's not sexy. It hasn't captured people and really engaged with them. And really what the industry needs is something that just is visually very striking and that creates that same desirability factor that Tesla so effectively uh, was able to exploit. You know, and, and certainly when I talk to friends now who are looking at their next vehicles, quite a lot of people have actually been quite open to the idea of fuel cells, which has surprised me in the UK, given that we have nine refueling stations or 10 refueling stations. But they always look at the models and say they don't think that they're particularly aesthetically attractive. So I just wanted to ask, do you also think maybe something as superficial as actually the models just aren't particularly attractive right now is also one of the problems? 
Well, it's only superficial if that's the market you're going after, right? So if you're going after the market that demands, you know, attention, right? Ultimately, what people who buy an early Model S want is for to get accolades, right? They want people to pat them on the back and say, wow, that's a beautiful car. I'm not as good as you. You're much better than me. You know, that is what they want, right? That's why you spend the $110,000 or whatever it is. And so, so if you don't achieve that, well, then, yeah, you're going to fail. So I think that's probably the same thing. I think if you go after a more niche application like school buses or delivery vehicles or whatnot, then you don't have to meet that same standard. But I still think hydrogen has a fundamental infrastructure problem, right? I mean, no one that I've ever talked to who was wanting to sell me a fuel cell vehicle said, don't worry, Jigger, you can put your car in your garage and we'll just put a micro electrolyzer um, out of your 110 socket and we'll just, you know, trickle fuel your vehicle, basically like a level one charger does. Um, No one's ever pitched me that. So I don't think that that's the preferred route to go. Um, And so then you're in this chicken and egg problem almost forever. Jigger, when you when you contemplate the the role of the private sector in in this kind of emerging hydrogen world or the the transition to using hydrogen, how does that differ by comparison to the the previous wave that you experienced when you were with the Carbon War Room? Well, I think that when you're in the private sector, you know you have a responsibility to at least say to your you know investors that you're trying to make money, right? And so and so um, at the very least, when you make the investment, you should believe that you've thought through all the risks and all the rewards and how that's going to shake out and make you money in the end, right? So if someone were to say to me, I'm going to pitch you a way to convert all of the vehicles at a refinery to hydrogen because there's already excess hydrogen there, I would say, oh, well, that makes a ton of sense. Like, that's great. Who's your technical partner? Oh, Toyota's agreed to do it. Great. And who's your you know partner here and there? And you put it all together and it might make a ton of sense, right? But that doesn't then lead you to believe that you can launch a fuel cell vehicle program for Uber or Lyft, where these drivers have to figure out how to refuel or else lose money on taxi rides, right? And so, whereas when you're in a nonprofit at the Carbon War Room, we could sit more expansively and say, well, can hydrogen actually save a gigaton of carbon? And how would one get to saving a gigaton of carbon with hydrogen if one were to envision it? From that standpoint, I mean, a big factor in this uh, this kind of equation is one of uh, regulation and policy and, and subsidies and incentivization. And so I wanted to, because I know you have some pretty strong feelings uh, when it comes to policy. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, I, we know that on the, uh, on the Energy Gang, you uh, a few years ago coined what uh, your co-host, uh, Stephen Lacey, called the Jigger Shaw Rule which I understand is uh, generally articulated as countries should not have stupid policies. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what I want to know is from your standpoint, looking at the market, looking at U.S. regulatory policy today, which can be a rather complex question, but what is the state of energy policy in the United States today? And does it fall afoul of the Jigger Shaw rule? Well, I mean, energy policy in the U.S. has actually gotten, you know, quite good, right? I mean, in general, we're talking about state-by-state policy. So we've, you know, forced the um, ending of putting food waste in the landfills in nine states or eight states across the country. And, and you know, in about 20 additional states, you've got, you know, forced diversion programs away from landfills, right? And that's state policy. I think even at the federal government, you've got a lot of great tax credits and whatnot that's in place. I think that... In general, my feeling is is that if the government's going to do something in a big way from a top-down basis, it needs to do it in a big way from a top-down basis, right? So providing tax credits doesn't work if what you need to do is actually change out $5 billion worth of infrastructure and replace all the natural gas pipelines with you know, hydrogen pipelines or whatnot, then you should do it that way. And so there's you know, two ways of thinking about it. One of the other things I've said a lot is that America has lost the ability to deploy in a big way. And if that's the case, then you've got to really find niche applications by which things can get done, right? So for instance, this is not American, but like in Taiwan or in Shanghai, they really have moved quite a distance towards two-wheelers and, you know, electric two-wheelers. 
Well, that's creating an enormous strain on the grid because every time someone plugs in a battery at the office or whatnot, it increases demand substantially. Those batteries can easily be replaced by fuel cells with with either hydrogen fuel or methanol fuel. And my sense is, is that that's far easier on the grid because you can make the hydrogen and the methanol um, in distributed locations when you have excess electricity grid capacity. And so in that case, the fuel cells and the hydrogen are really solving an acute problem that batteries have a hard time with solving, right? And gives you three times the range. And so there's a lot of these niches where you could see five, $10 billion markets um, that really could feed um, the hydrogen industry without having to move directly to passenger cars. One area that has been consistently very uh, accommodating inside the U.S. sort of federal framework for supporting fuel cells has been the military and the Department of Defense. And there's been consistently a lot of money and a lot of resources allocated to that. Uh, and I guess one of the things that was interesting for me was um, on one of the other um, Green Tech Media podcasts, Political Climate, um, one of the panelists was speaking about how renewable energy deployments have actually improved the resiliency of U.S. Air Force bases and uh, therefore sort of asking the question of whether Potentially, there needs to be a better partnership between DOD and developers to try and encourage more deployments like that, given that there are benefits then at that level. I mean, I'm just wondering if maybe also that's an aspect. I mean, resiliency of fuel cells is one of the big aspects that really has been proven, right? I mean, Hurricane Sandy, fuel cells played a big role on the East Coast. A number of Caribbean islands also benefited hugely from fuel cells. Indonesia uses them as well for critical systems. So do you think maybe that that it's a case that there are certain lead agencies that could make an impact here in the U.S., like DOD or other emergency services, fire departments, police, et cetera, without having to wait for a federal government response. Yeah, I think that's another 5 to $10 billion niche, right? So whether that's um, the U.S. military or whether that's FEMA, which is the Federal Energy Management Agency that, you know, emergency management agency that helps with, you know, post-hurricane or post-tornado uh, or other, you know, natural disaster relief. Um, you know, certainly fuel cells are far more cost effective than diesel engines. And most diesel engines only hold 24 hours worth of fuel and fuel cells can more cost effectively hold far more fuel. Um, so I think those are a lot of places. But again, if you think about all of the effort and, you know, blood, sweat and tears that was spent over the last 18 years to really get to the Mirai, you could imagine maybe all of that blood, sweat and tears should have been spent on something more niche like emergency management or resiliency versus um, passenger vehicles. Like, I just feel like you only get a couple of shots at this. And if you use it for something like passenger vehicles, then, you know, you may end up where we are today, where there's a lot of folks looking at hydrogen and saying, you know, maybe the world has passed them by. So following on directly from that, you you published an article uh, a little a little while ago, probably a month ago, on, on why hydrogen will be the ultimate enabler of clean electricity. Specifically on that, why, why do you think it is and how many shots have we got left? Well, I think that the, the beauty of hydrogen is that we have spent a tremendous amount of money on making all of the component pieces better. And... Um, a lot of the component pieces, frankly, you know, trace back to World War II. So, you know, the basic electrolyzer has been around for decades um, and actually a century. So um, it's more efficient today and it's cheaper today, but it's actually, you know, so still very uh, mature technology. And so you can imagine that in places like the UK or in places like the US where they're currently pushing lithium ion batteries, which are cheaper than natural gas peaker plants, uh, and they are, but they really are only cheaper and better really for one day, two day, maybe three day storage, right? Like you really make money on lithium ion batteries by cycling those batteries every day. You don't make money by holding on to that charge for, you know, a week and only getting paid once per week to charge and discharge. Right. And so, so it's not a great application for some of the most congested parts of the grid. But you could imagine in some of the most congested part of the grids, like where in California, for instance, in March and April, there's very little air conditioning load. And so the solar power actually just produces a huge amount of excess solar power and they're curtailing eight to 12% of all the power. In those situations, you could imagine having a, a local electrolyzer at the distribution grid level where all of that power is aggregated put into the electrolyzer, turn into hydrogen. And then that hydrogen could actually feed into, you know, plug power warehouses or other hydrogen needs. 
that are going around in that area. And given where we are today in terms of our production and 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 shipping of hydrogen today, you know, it's about a hundred and you know fifteen thousand sort of kilograms a month or so that's being shipped around. Um, you could imagine that that could easily be served by green hydrogen from the solar and wind industry instead of taking them from you know uh, refineries and shipping them uh, with a delivered cost of nine dollars a kilogram to some of these places. Right, and I guess um, I mean so there obviously we're, we're kind of coming back to the sort of slightly more green hydrogen space. I, I, what I wanted to push on a little bit, Jigger, is what area of sort of the new hydrogen technologies or at least new applications for hydrogen technologies are you most excited about? Or, or at least you see the greatest potential for sort of decarbonizing the energy sector? Uh, well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of new technologies out there. But remember, I'm not paid to be excited about technology, right? So I'm paid to find technology that has basically been gathering dust on the shelf and finding new and more valuable ways for those technologies to be deployed today so that you could actually create a revenue cycle for these industries as opposed to where they are now, which is just an investment cycle where, you know, they're constantly losing money every year, right? I would love for all these companies to actually be profitable every year. And so a lot of the, the solutions that we're talking about, whether it's plug powers, fuel cells, or whether it's, um, you know, electrolyzers that can uh, take solar and wind and, you know, store them locally and then ship them around uh, within a 50 to 100 mile radius. Like a lot of these technologies I'm talking about are 35 year old technology. They've certainly gotten more efficient and better today, but they're not new technology in any way, shape, or form. No investor like me believes that there's actually fundamental technology risk in what we're describing. So uh, rather a, a tangential and, and possibly tongue-in-cheek question to follow up, you know, as, as somebody who was you know, leading the, the Carbon War Room's efforts on this back, uh, back in the day, and as an RMI person right now, I got to ask, was, uh, was Amory Lovins right all those years ago? Oh, on hydrogen? Yeah. No, look, I think Amory is one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And so I certainly am not going to take anything away from Amory. But I do believe that Amory has a certain point of view around data that um, that is tied directly to sort of the mainstream use cases for all of the things that he's working on. And, you know, generate and, you know, the, the areas that I've worked in have always focused on the niche areas. And you know, in general, what I believe is that when you focus on the niche areas, you can move from something that might cost a lot of money today, but actually bring down the technology cost curve and then be used in larger and larger application sets. So you can imagine that um, that hydrogen might be super val- uh, expensive today at 10 bucks a kilogram or whatnot as an energy carrier. Um, but you could make it at a dollar a kilogram in the future if we have rampant overproduction of solar and wind and and it's so overproduced that in fact the solar and wind guys are paying you two cents a kilowatt hour to take the power um well then hydrogen production could be super cheap right and so i just think that in general from a systems tool perspective there are a lot of applications for hydrogen where it can be super costly on let's say a levelized cost of energy basis or however you want to call it but super cheap compared to, you know, building a new nuclear plant or, you know, building compressed air energy storage or, or you know, storing uh, clean energy and batteries for uh, three months. Jigger, I, I actually, we got a little bit away from uh, policy, uh, uh, those we were speaking on a bit earlier, but I wanted to uh, to follow back up on something you had said there, which is, you know, about the... U.S. being a state versus a federal market, and that's somewhat timely today, given the uh, the dispute going on between uh, the federal government over the Clean Air Act. Uh, I was curious, from a private investor standpoint, and someone who watches the these markets very closely, do you think that that dispute, that sort of uncertainty over California's sovereignty as a leader in emission standards, does that cause problems for private investors? Has that affected the market at all? No, not really. I think in general, people all believe that cooler heads will prevail. So whether it's Brexit and what's going to happen to all the people and assets in the UK that are shipping power into the EU and how those are going to get dealt with, or whether there's the 
difference between California and the U.S. I think in gen uh, and sorry the federal um, regulatory framework. I think people generally view that stuff to be you know something that can be dealt with in a way that's you know far simpler and easier than sort of the hot rhetoric on both sides. But yeah, I mean, but just to complete the thought on Amory Lovins and the hydrogen in the past, like I just don't know whether hydrogen is going to be ever present, like Amory predicts, right? Like I I think hydrogen has several five, ten, twenty billion dollar niche markets that are going to be super profitable. I just don't know whether it actually makes sense for hydrogen to actually replace natural gas as this universal, you know, sort of heating fuel or industrial fuel. I guess the one thing that I would maybe jump in on that one, Jigga, is just that, you know, if I if I think about markets like the United Kingdom right now that are trying to figure out ways to get to net zero, sort of, you know, large industrial economy, 65 million people, 28 million homes, it, it is really hard when you sit and talk to the policymakers for them to understand how else they're going to do that. I mean, certainly when I, you know, talk to sort of friends and family and travel around the UK, yeah, people are very, very reluctant to go down the electrification route. And people who've been trying to sell kind of the, some of the electric heating solutions, so ground source heat pumps, for example, really have gotten absolutely nowhere. And a number of companies that really worked in that space have struggled. So I guess my question would be, if it's not going to be hydrogen that acts as a bit of an anchor technology for decarbonizing this, is there anywhere obvious that people aren't looking at that they should be? Well, I don't know the answer to your question. I would just simply say that it may not be it may just be nothing, right? I mean, it may be that we don't decarbonize to net zero and instead we rely on um, carbon capture and storage to do the rest of the work, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be glib about it. I'm just simply saying that I think the notion that um, you're going to take a fuel, which is largely a waste product, right? Natural gas is largely a waste product. And you're going to replace it with hydrogen, which to date, we haven't really figured out how to get to um, a dollar a kilogram. Now, it may be that one day the UK says, you know what, screw it. We're going to build so much offshore wind and so much you know, onshore wind and, and solar that we're actually just going to be able to generate a huge amount of extra electricity at two cents a kilowatt hour. We're going to convert that to hydrogen on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis, and we're going to do this, that, and the other. And that could be the answer. But it's not like, we're not on track for me to be able to say that that answer is actually in an uninevitability, right? And so I have a hard time with saying that, um, you know, the UK has to be net zero and the only way they're going to get there is by hydrogen. My sense is, is that one of the other ways they could get there is by burying carbon. Sure. I mean, it is certainly a, it's certainly a live discussion um, over here to see kind of how that, how that works out. You know, obviously in the US, there's actually quite a lot of talk around climate, especially with the Green New Deal. I mean, is that something that you think um, potentially will change some of the dynamics around this? I mean, as you say, if you're starting to deploy even further amounts of solar and wind onto the grid and you're already experiencing uh, 8 to 10% curtailment rates for PV in places like California... Um, you know, does that suddenly start to change the game, you know, in the direction that you were talking about? And potentially, is that something that, you know, investors and people watching the market should be paying attention to? What might a Green New Deal do in terms of facilitating things like hydrogen? So the Green New Deal is a political word, right? And so I think you have to talk about it from a political perspective. So if the Green New Deal were to be successful, the whole point of the Green New Deal is to bring a larger set of constituents around the table to be able to get the political support necessary to pass something large, right? So this includes labor, it includes the poor, it includes, you know, minorities, it includes people who've largely been forgotten in frontline communities. And so the question becomes, what do those people want? And in general, I would say most of those people do not want innovation, right? What they want is trillion dollar budgets, and trillion-dollar budgets are not provided to innovation. Trillion-dollar budgets are provided to establish technologies, right? So you're going to get a ton more solar, a ton more wind. You may get a lot of weatherization, right? There are many homes in the United States right now with our polar vortex that's going through the country right now um, where they simply cannot have their home heated up to above 55 degrees because their home has so many leaks in it that 
you know, needs to be weatherized. Um, and so you could imagine a huge deployment of all those technologies. And I agree with you that on top of all those technologies, you could see a dramatic reduction in wholesale power prices because we overbuilt solar and overbuilt wind to the point where you actually have a large amount of curtailment, a large amount of negative pricing where hydrogen now makes a lot of sense. But you could also see a bunch of people building chemical plants um, in strategic locations and making hydrogen and then turning that hydrogen into chemicals as opposed to turning it into, you know, industrial heat. Right. And so you could imagine that hydrogen is a building block for lots of things. It could even be used, as we discussed earlier, as a transportation fuel, or it could be, you know, morphed from, you know, hydrogen combined with CO2 to make, you know, things like jet fuel. Um, so I just don't know whether um, the Green New Deal necessarily means that we're going to be heating and, and, you know, our homes, et cetera, with hydrogen. It could be that we use hydrogen in lots of other ways. One of the things that a lot of people are hoping for um, in the States and uh, it seems that the German government is, is starting to lean towards and certainly people have hinted that in France it might happen is this idea of a, of a kind of new feed-in tariff type structure to really kickstart the industry and start to get some scale going. I mean, obviously, uh, it's always popular and attractive for investors if there's a guaranteed off-taker and that guaranteed off-taker is the government. Um, but I guess just pushing on that a little bit, do you think that it is possible and that there is a logic to being able to develop the market without, you know, sort of a wide renewable based green hydrogen uh, market without a government incentive? Could a merchant market uh, merchant model work in the U.S.? Well, the U.S. is generally 10 years behind Europe. Right. So what we do is we wait for the Europeans to spend a bunch of money on bringing down the costs and then we. Uh, bring our scale to bring it down the next 10 years, right? <laughs> and we end up getting yeah, an yeah. 80% discount. I, I do laugh you're using the uh, exact term my, uh, my CIO uses, which is exactly the same phrase, so <laughs> 10 years behind. So I, it always surprises everyone, though, I think. Look at offshore wind. The U.S. is finally getting into offshore wind, you know, 10 years after Europe. So, um, so I, I mean, Europe's certainly has a long history of, of commercializing these technologies. So I certainly wouldn't put it past them to do this for hydrogen. I think that the challenge with hydrogen is, again, it's not a primary fuel source, right? So ultimately, yeah, sure. it's really used to solve a problem. Um, and so the question is, what problem are they solving? In Germany, it may be overproduction of solar and wind or other things like that. In France, it could be that they're basically being asked right now to turn down their nuclear power plants um, which is not a natural act for much of their nuclear technology, which might cost hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to retrofit some of their nuclear plants to more smoothly be able to load follow the grid. It may be far cheaper just to turn all of the excess nuclear power into hydrogen and just to yeah. blast, you know, like basically, you know, you know, run nuclear power plants at 100% of capacity all the time. And so the question is, what problem are they solving and who are the political constituencies who want that problem solved? And so I think it'll be a different set of political constituencies in Germany versus in France. Okay. Well, I think, I don't know, Chris, did you have, did you want to follow up with some more questions? No, look, um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jigga. Thank you so much for your time. You've uh, spoiled us with uh, your insights and thoughts. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jigger. Thank you. Thank you very much for calling in. And maybe we can have you in in person in the studio someday. I'd love to. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, what was it like to meet one of your personal heroes? <laughs> no, but it's, it's fantastic. I mean, obviously, um, you know, one of the things that's just always interesting, again, and what's a little bit different about having Jigger on this show is that, you know, he's actually bringing that investor perspective, you know, someone who has focused, as he rightly said, he's, it's not so much for him about um, trying to find the newest sort of most innovative breakthrough piece of equipment. It's about trying to identify what equipment and technologies already exist out there today and then seeing whether there's a way to make them commercial that actually addresses the energy needs that we have. And, and I think that really is actually a crucial missing component or has been for a long time and missing part of this hydrogen transition. Uh, and so actually, I think it's really exciting. I think he he, was, he spoke well to that. Um, yeah, and I think it was also kind of nice as well to have a little bit of an humility too at the beginning, sort of saying, you know, I maybe did miss it at the time and, and good reasons for, for why. But uh, 
you know, it's not often that you get someone on the show who's kind of, you know, or in, in life in general, who's willing to kind of say, no, maybe I missed that one. So I, I thought that was all pretty cool, to be honest. What was, uh, what was your take, Patrick? Yeah, I think, I think a couple of, a couple of interesting things that I noted, um, the conversation around the uh, small electrolyzer and the kind of dispersed kind of or a distributed generation kind of capacity, I suppose. Interesting prospect, interesting the references particularly to the chemicals industry, interesting that this is a, a kind of a, an enabling or a transitional mechanism uh, for the next stage of a renewable energy development and build-out. Um, at the end of the day, I think I think this was very interesting, right? But as you said at the beginning of this, Chris, you know, this is the investor perspective, right? How do you get a commercial product that delivers returns for investors and therefore is viable as a, a general effort kind of or a general kind of a proposition going forward? Um, and, and there are definitely still some questions, right? Questions around the transportation and storage. We, we heard those kind of spoken to generally. Uh, questions around the actual production mechanisms, the price points, the the uh, kind of incentive or kind of uh, motivation of different actors within and stakeholders within the space to actually do that kind of or engage with that transition. So all very relevant things, all very much things that our previous kind of um, guests have spoken to, whether they be kind of OEMs or developers or indeed uh, kind of... Uh, uh, different kind of uh, kind of manufacturers or positional kind of developers, I suppose, um, all have spoken to these things, albeit from the other perspective. So this, I think, rounds out a lot of the the kind of the arguments and challenges that we face. Uh, Andrew, what was your what was your kind of view on all of this? Well, I actually had a question for you, Chris. Just uh, bear with me here. Jigger said something that uh, on our our live. Uh, our, our WhatsApp feed amongst the hosts here uh, got a bit of a reaction out of you. At one point, he said, I'm not paid to be excited about technology. What was it that uh, surprised you about that statement? I'm curious. Look, I think um, in some ways, it's the completely right answer, right? I mean, investors are supposed to be able to take a dispassionate view of these things and say, look, you know, it's not about how cool and shiny it looks and all the amazing things that it could hypothetically do and we can write about in the report you know investors meant to look at it and go is this something that can be solving a clear problem and that delivers uh, tangible returns to my investors and so i think that's kind of where he's driving at i guess what sort of surprised me a little bit though is that uh, you know it's hard to spend a lot of time and commit a lot of time to anything without having some passion and interest and i think especially in the renewable world um where there is sort of not only this kind of genuine belief from a lot of people who've been in it for a long time, people like Jigger, that this is the right thing to do, but also because it's kind of associated with what many people would consider to be the biggest issue of our time, which is addressing climate change. It, it seems kind of hard to me to be entirely dispassionate about that, right? I mean, if I was an investor in food technology, if, uh, sorry, like food manufacturing processes, um, you know, maybe then I might take the view that I can dispassionately look at one piece of technology or another and kind of make a decision. But I think it's kind of hard to not have, or at least I was sort of surprised at the idea of you can be involved in this sector that, you know, if we fail at this, and, you know, I've spoken about this before, but if we do fail at this climate challenge, there will be major implications for all of us and future generations. I, I find it hard to, even as an investor or a developer, be completely dispassionate about that and the implications of that. I mean, I guess the one thing that is uh, that does make me laugh is, uh, you know, anyone who's um, listening to the podcast that has a uh, home hydrogen refueling solution, um, get in touch with Jigger. Looks like uh, <laughs> you could uh, you could have a potentially interested uh, investor with uh, good connections to talk to. Stop trying <laughs> to sell him a car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually surprised by how um, open a lot of people have been in the UK to the idea of a fuel cell car. I mean, I think it is, it does always surprise me that actually when you sit down and you talk to people about the fact that it has a longer range, a quicker refueling time, you know, uh, and the fact that there are models available today, you know, it actually does for a lot of people um, resonate, um, which, is, which I think is kind of surprising in some senses. I think you almost wonder whether half the challenge is simply just lack of knowledge of these things rather than some of the other perceived problems that we have with them. Talking about people's willingness or the point of engagement, I think that that was interesting. And this is a tangent that, you know, 
is worth noting and probably something we have to explore a little bit differently in the future. But the hybridization angle, uh, the the prospect of optimizing your battery and and using hydrogen as a range extender, I think there's there's a lot of legs for a lot of sectors in that. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's a space that that really is going to be very very interesting. Um, but probably a very particular kind of number of use cases or a particular type of uh, kind of vehicle or activity that, that you want that for. Uh, I actually want to just follow that and, and take a question on to Andrew from that one, because what was interesting to me was Jigo was saying, you know, if you're doing last mile delivery and you've got 60 mile range, a battery's great. But if you want to do over 100 miles, it might make more sense to do with the fuel cell. I mean, to me... Andrew, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here. I would have thought that if we'd had a fuel, if we'd had an electric vehicle guy or girl on the on the line, that they would have been fairly kind of skeptical, or at least certainly they would have wanted to make a number of comments on the idea that you know anything above a hundred mile range must be a uh, fuel cell solution instead of a battery. And, and and I'm not saying that I don't agree with Jigger. I'm just saying it was interesting to hear him mention that. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think that that's the state of play today. I would disagree, and this is all presuming that companies deliver on, on their promises, but there are several different models coming down the pipeline. I mean, of course, Rivian is probably the most cited these days in terms of battery longevity, right? Like on a single charge, Rivian is saying the R1S and the R1T will get 400-ish miles to a full charge. Uh, and so I would say that in the current market, it's probably, Jigger's probably spot on. And I think you guys would agree with that. But I think coming down the pipeline, uh, we're talking about quite a few models who are promising above 300 miles per per full, full charge. And again, this comes back to the chicken or the egg question, which, of course, hydrogen is the hydrogen fuel cell world is also dealing with when it comes to fueling infrastructure, charging a, a battery that can do plus 300 miles per charge basis uh, can take quite a bit of time, right? I mean, it, it's even on a fast charger, uh, that is still hours of charging. Now, when you're talking about networks, charging networks like Ionides or some of the new ones that are coming out uh, in North America and Europe that are 350 kilowatt chargers, uh, you know, they're starting to install infrastructure that can make that charge time significantly lower. Problem is that many of the batteries for the cars that are currently on the market are not compatible with that, right? So, it's kind of first building out the infrastructure and the infrastructure couldn't meet the demand for the cars that were available, notably Tesla's uh, and longer range cars like the Tesla Model 3, Model S. Uh, the charging infrastructure was not built out to be fast enough. Uh, so you were still getting uh, you know, long charge times. Now that they've built out or are beginning to build out ultra fast charging infrastructure, the cars are behind schedule and they can't, they're not compatible with those charging speeds. So now the car makers have to catch up on that front. Uh, so I think Jigger's spot on when it comes to where we stand today and that there needs to be, uh, or that uh, battery electric vehicles are sort of a last, I think last mile is a strong word, but an urban mobility solution today. Uh, but I think that will change. All right. Fair enough. I don't know. Did that, does that square with your understanding? What do you think, Patrick? Look, this is this is the quintessential problem we have in general with the mobility space transition, right? It's the infrastructure build out. It's the capacity within pre-existing infrastructure. Indeed, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't aware of the constraint on the vehicle side, but that sounds like a pretty pretty substantial problem, right? Because you have now generational transition required within the fleet as it exists today. Um, right. Well, these are the is... problems we have to design for, right? And and I think none of these things are easy. None. Of, this isn't a, a straightforward kind of approach. But if there is a mechanism that you know can address this, or if we learn the lesson of this constraint, and there is ultra fast charging and infra, or and vehicles that can actually use it effectively, then this is a lesson that we can learn early and well and great. But. I personally think there's there's value, as I said previously, in the in the range extender as, aspect for uh, for hydrogen vehicles or hybridizing vehicles. Um, I think the urban mobility solution that battery electric vehicles provide is is well established as a, a good structural model. 
Uh, obviously, there are certain places where that's proven to be a little constrained, but but like we know something works, right? And now we have to fix the exactly how it works bit. Right. And I mean, to be clear, the state of battery uh, battery and charger compatibility, it is problematic, but, uh, you know, the charging infrastructure is still the one that's lacking, right? Like, I don't want to say that we are at a point where it's the car makers who are behind and that's what's slowing things down, right? I mean, we, we need to build charging infrastructure on many levels and it needs to catch up in terms of accessibility not just in terms of uh, in terms of power. That is also to say that there are companies that are future proofing, you know, and, and the charging companies would tell you that they are building 350 kilowatt chargers as a future proofing solution, right? Because they they are well aware that compatible batteries are not available in many cars that are being offered today uh, in the electric vehicle market. Uh, but that they see those coming down the pipeline. So they're trying to future-proof. And uh, and so the car companies and the battery makers are, are trying to catch up on that front. Uh, you know, there is, I believe, the Audi e-tron, the Porsche Taycan, uh, a couple of others out there uh, that are, you know, available already. I actually don't know where Tesla's batteries stand on the spectrum, but uh, there are several models available or soon to be available that are, uh, theoretically set up to take a 350 or even 450 kilowatt charge. Uh, so, so it's it is a matter of uh, of planning for the future. But uh, I think uh, you know as battery technology progresses, then you'll be able to you know charge a, a a BV in four or five minutes, maybe five to ten minutes, and go 400 miles before your next charge. Andrew just dropped the mic and walked out. Yeah. Yeah, is that your mic drop? I'm done. <laughs> okay, so that does it for us on this episode of Everything About Hydrogen. Big thank you to Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital for coming on the podcast today and sharing his views with us. And most importantly, many thanks to our listeners and to Patrick and Chris for joining me here in the studio and from London. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you find your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show. As you know, we love to hear from our audience, so please do reach out with any questions or suggestions you have for us. You can reach us by email at podcasts at inspiratia.com or find us on Twitter with the handle at about hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.